we will get New Zealand back on track. Labour will make dental care free for all New Zealanders up to the age of 30. And just like that, the campaign proper was off. And then just like this, it took a turn. I'm very clear that thanks to the Labour Party, this is going to become the most negative election campaign in New Zealand history. I haven't called a media conference every time someone said something mean about me. Shots fired back and forth. Jacinda Ardern's Be Kind has become Be Nasty. I think it's incredibly thin-skinned. And back and forth and back again. I have certainly haven't, you know, had a bit of a cry every time that it's happened. American-style uh, hatchet job on Christopher Luxon. The Nationals campaign chair, Chris Bishop's sanctimony, stalled momentarily when he was called out for posting an American-style hatchet job himself. Oh, I, I haven't... I haven't seen that, but uh, yeah, I post all sorts of things, as you well know. Lol, if we didn't laugh, we'd cry. <laughs> Buckle up, folks, we're in for a hell of a ride. <laughs> Kia ora Aotearoa, I'm Tova O'Brien, and welcome to the first episode of Tova, a stuff podcast. Later, Andrea Vance and Luke Malpass shared their analysis of the week that was and the week yet to come. But first... Bouncing off the walls with the election campaign as it is. Chris Hipkins, Labour leader and Prime Minister. We have him in the studio for an extended interview. How long have we got? 15, 15 apparently. 15, 20. 15, 20, I think. When have you ever stuck to time? Exactly. <laughs> 25. And indeed, I did take liberties. We ran well over. So thank you to the PM and his team for their benevolence. Also worth pointing out for the record, we wanted Christopher Luxon on this first ep too, so that you could really weigh up the major parties' respective pitches. But alas, we were told he is far too busy. And when we saw him playing cricket and eating ice cream, we totally understood his priorities. I am not mucking around and doing kumbaya and mush and consultation and discussion. Let's get into it. Labour leader Chris Hipkins, my first guest on our podcast. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you very much for being with us. I want to start by playing you something from... Back when it all began, your maiden speech in 2008, oh way goodness. back when you looked exactly the same, but you sounded a little bit more like Miss Universe. Take a listen. We need to rediscover what it means to live as part of a community. Compassion, respect, friendship, love, tolerance and forgiveness need to once again become values that are embedded in all that we do. Should you have said all that we do, with the exception of election campaigns. Oh, well, look, everybody expects that, you know, there's going to be a, a robust exchange of ideas in an election campaign. That's the democratic process. But I think in terms of the way we govern, um, absolutely, I think those those values are really important. Not a lot of compassion, love, forgiveness on this campaign, though. It has got a bit nasty. That's being levelled by both sides. Look, I think it's an exchange of ideas. I don't necessarily think that it's been nasty. There is certainly some nastiness at the fringes, um, but I think the main exchange of ideas amongst the, the main parties um, are, are kind of exchanges of ideas that are legitimate. Nationals said that it's the ugliest campaign in recent memory and you've called Chris Luxon thin-skinned, precious, out of touch. You're saying he was having a bit of a cry every time he's scrutinised. Your finance minister's called Nicola Willis a liar. So are you campaigning nasty? Well, I note that you're only um, you know, indicating what we have said as opposed to what we've been responding to. I mean, the day I became Prime Minister, the National Party started an attack campaign against me. And you know, I just accept that that is part of the democratic process. Doesn't mean I like it, but it is. It has been happening, and um, you know, that is just what democracy is about. You're doing this kind of playground. They started it thing, but 
is that really reason to follow suit? If they go low, shouldn't you go high? No, I totally disagree with that. We're we're scrutinising what they are proposing. I think that is exactly what political parties should do to each other in an election campaign. Uh, you know, it's it's always happened in election campaigns. I do draw the line at personal attacks, though, um, and I think you know when you're when you're attacking someone's family, when you're attacking uh, you know people very personally, I, I don't agree with that. Here's another clip from your maiden speech. This is you talking about the long legacy of Rogernomics and the mother of all budgets. As a society, we became indifferent to the lives of those around us. We see that indifference to others in the terrible growth in violent crime. So you're condemning the terrible growth in violent crime there. It must be a real point of humiliation for you that violent crime has risen under Labour. I think if you look at um, what sits behind some of those statistics, the introduction of a, an, a new offence that we've done under our government around strangulation actually has contributed to an increased number of people being prosecuted for violent crime. That, in, I think, is something that we should welcome. I don't welcome the fact that the crime happens in the first place, but the fact that we're saying that that is an offence that should be categorised and it should be prosecuted um, is something that I'm pleased about. I'm but very, you're not, you're I'm not very contesting concerned. that violent crime is oh, I'm rising very, though. I'm, I'm very concerned about some of the violent crime that we're seeing. We've seen an escalation in gang activity um, and that is very concerning and some of the violent crime that we're seeing has certainly been spurred by that. We're also seeing an escalation in the violence of youth offending. So things like ram raiding and smash and grabs and so on, they are very concerning and um, I guess if, you, if I go back to what I was talking about in my maiden speech, I don't believe that simply locking people up is going to solve those problems. If you look at the kids who are doing that ram raid offending, for example, about 90% of those kids, the repeat ram raiders, about 90% of those kids live in a household with an adult who has also been involved in the correction system, whether they've been in prison or whatever. If we think that just locking those kids up is going to break that cycle of offending, it isn't. Um, we've actually got to focus on breaking the cycle of offending. This is intergenerational in many cases. So these problems have built up over decades. Yeah, it's not just the kids though, is it? And I think the prison must is reduced by around 17%, um, possibly more since Labor came to power. Would you consider reversing or softening or pausing your prison reduction target of 30% while violent crime, at least while violent crime continues to rise? Um, the biggest reductions in uh, the prison offences, uh, the people spending time in prison, are not for violent crime. Actually, the number of people in prison for violent offending hasn't really gone down significantly. It's in other types of offending where people are more likely to end up on, on home-based um, detention and, and those sorts of things. You're not going to touch that target? Um, well, I'm not going to judge our success on law and order by the number of people that we lock up. I think we should be aiming to prevent the offending in the first place. And we know that locking people up doesn't actually, isn't very good at preventing future offending. We've actually got to be much more focused on looking at the underlying contributing factors. I'm not going to say causes because, um, you know, ultimately the cause of criminal offending are the people who are doing the offending. But we should look at some of the things that drive people towards that um, and actually tackle those. If we want less offending, that's the way to do it. You're not going to touch the prison reduction target. It's staying in place. We have one of the highest imprisonment rates in the world on a per capita basis. I don't think that it, blocking more people up is going to reduce crime. Okay. You you also condemn in, in your maiden speech the tragic level of child abuse in New Zealand. Do you know how many children on average are found to be abused or neglected in New Zealand each year? I don't have the numbers memorised. It's far too many. One child is a child too many. The, I just got the most recent numbers from Oranga Tamariki and it's 12,743 in the last year. That's up on the year before. Would you consider a child abuse reduction target? 
Oh, absolutely. I look I, as I've said, one child. One of the problems with setting a target on something like that is, you know, if you if you were to say there's you know twelve thousand offences in a given year, and we can say, well, we're aiming for eleven thousand next year. I'm not willing to say that because eleven thousand is, you're is still not acceptable. Chi- you're willing to say that with child poverty though, because you have a child poverty reduction target. So you're willing to put numbers on poverty. Why not um, treat child abuse and neglect with that same level of concern? Because we should be aiming for elimination of it. I'm not willing. That's to fine. That can one be your aspirational goal. Being abused. Right, but in the meantime, why not put a child abuse reduction target in place as you've done with with child poverty reduction? I don't want to discourage people from reporting child abuse. One of the ways that you can don't want to be held to account on rising child abuse numbers. You can manipulate crime statistics in order to make them look better, and I don't want to create an incentive for that. So, is the child poverty or the child poverty reduction targets are they just kind of a waste of time as well because because you can manipulate statistics? No, no, that is an objective measure in terms of law and order in terms of crime, you can actually discourage reporting and recording of offending by setting targets. And I don't want to do that. On health, let's just look at Pharmac. It takes Pharmac 822 days. That's more than twice as long as Australia to fund a new drug. Would you consider doing as the Cancer Society's asking and set fixed time timelines for Pharmac to assess new drugs? Not necessarily, because I still think that they need to make clinical decisions about, you know, how best to fund it's a drug. twice as long yeah, as but Australia. I, I don't want to say to them that they have to make a decision within a certain period of time if that means that they ultimately end up not funding drugs where with a little bit more time they'd get more evidence and more information and end up funding them. Well, what about so, fast, so another thing the Cancer Society has put forward is fast-tracking life-saving or life-prolonging drugs. Is that something you consider? I wouldn't I wouldn't rule out changes to Pharmac's process. Um, I think if we can if we can improve Pharmac's processes, of course, I'm open to having those conversations. I think one of the biggest challenges that Pharmac has is around funding. They can only ever fund as many drugs as they have money available to pay for. And we've we've increased significantly Pharmac's budget and we want to continue to do that. If they if we can improve the processes to speed that up, then you know, of course I'm open to any conversations around that. Um, but what I don't want to do is is set Processes that can have a distortionary effect, whereby whereby people say, okay, we've, you've got certainty, we're just not funding. But that's it. not happening in Australia, is it? Because we see Kiwis flocking to Australia, we see medical refugees constantly moving to Australia to access the drugs that they can't access here in New Zealand. And we have different processes in New Zealand, and um, you know, they we, have better we, processes. We, we don't have we don't have a Trans Tasman um, automatic arrangement where if it's recognised in Australia or New Zealand, it's automatically recognised in the other country. You broke a promise from the 2017 coalition agreement to progressively increase the age of breast cancer screening to 74-year-olds. Would you recommit to that pledge, make good on that broken promise? Um, it's not something that I have um, looked at. Obviously, our com- the commitments that we make will be in our health manifesto, which we've not announced yet. Right, but this is something that the Cancer Society and others have been calling for for, for some time. Is it not something that Labor's considering doing? The Nats are going to do it. Yeah, look, I'm not I'm not announcing our health manifesto today. I mean, it was in your 2017 coalition agreement. Yeah, it's, you I'm, broke that promise. I'm, I'm not announcing our health manifesto today. It speaks a bit to your failure to deliver, doesn't it? And also why Kiwis should trust anything you're promising us on the campaign trail if you're still not making good on the 2017 promises. We have to recognise that between when the coalition agreement was signed in 2017 and now, there has A, been a change of government. We don't have a coalition government now, but also there's been a global pandemic, which for our health system and our ability to hit the targets that we, you know, fulfil the commitments we were looking to do uh, back in 2017 in the health system, it has been very difficult because the whole system has been so badly disrupted. But diagnosis, early diagnosis is what everyone is calling for within the within the sector. Bowel cancer as well, there's been a dramatic up 
uptick in younger New Zealanders who are dying from bowel cancer. It is our second biggest killer, and yet we have one of the highest screening ages in the world. I think Australia's got 10, 15 years on us. Will you reduce the screening age for bowel cancer? We have we have actually expanded the, the for group. For Māori and Pacific, we, yeah. we have expanded the group who are being screened for bowel cancer. And of course, um, as, as resources allow, I would, I would certainly be open to extending it further. But I'm not making a specific commitment on that today. That will be contained in our health manifesto. Okay, so that could be something in the health manifesto, though, because at the moment, screening from 60. In Australia, it's from 50. But if you ask for it, it's from 45. So they're getting, they're getting free bowel cancer screening vastly earlier than we are. I know you're very keen for to get a few scoops by getting me to announce our Not health scoops. policy ahead of, I, I uh, of when we actually announce it. But we will we will announce the health manifesto and it will have the commitments that we're With making respect, around this access isn't about to scoops. screening and around this is about uh, lives. access to pharmaceuticals and so on. This isn't about scoops, this is about lives and this is what the Bowel Cancer Society, Otago University, the Cancer Society, people are calling for these changes from government and you're not you're not doing it. Well, I'm not announcing our health manifesto today. No, you're quite right. But that could come yet. Uh, like I said, we'll, we'll announce our health manifesto when we announce it. You've got um, a few mortgages on the, the three properties that you own. Are you going to be affected by this refixing mortgage bomb? I already have been, actually. Um, my my mortgage rates came off uh, uh, um, earlier in the year and uh, there was a, a step up in my mortgage repayments. So 14% of homeowners are due to refix mm. in the next few months. We're talking hundreds of thousands of Kiwis going into an election cycle who are facing exponentially higher mortgage rates. Is there anything that the Labour Party, that the government can do for them? The number one thing that we can do for anybody who's facing higher interest rates is to bring inflation back down because that's how we'll get in, uh, interest rates back down again. We are seeing inflation trending back down to the point where it'll be back within the target range by the second, well, you know, sometime in the second half of next year and then interest rates can follow after that. The thing that's causing higher interest rates right now is that inflation has been high. In New Zealand and around the world, interest rates are higher all the way around the world than they were you know, 18 months, two years ago. To get them back down in New Zealand, we've got to get inflation back down. A Horizon study found 3% of mortgage holders could be forced to sell, 43,000 households. Could you do something like the UK has done? So the finance minister there summoned the banks and lenders and consequently they ended up putting a one-year grace period. If people couldn't meet their mortgage payments, there was a one-year grace period before foreclosure and also um, protecting their credit ratings. Is that something you're looking at? I've already had um, several conversations with the banks about this matter. Now, banks at this point, are, you know, they, they give us an indication of those households that they're seeing in serious you know, financial distress. At the moment, the indication from the banks are that they are managing that through with people without foreclosure. So they're basically, they work with them on their options. They work at spreading their repayments over a longer period of time. There's a whole lot of things that the banks are doing. The banks actually don't want to put people out of their homes either. That's not good business for the banks either. So the feedback that we've got from the banks at the moment is that people are managing through. It is tough. There's no question about that. But the banks are not indicating that there's going to be a sudden flurry of foreclosures. Okay, but if we do start seeing foreclosures, is this something you could consider doing as the UK has done? If they've had the capacity to do it, bring the finance minister in, smash some heads together and get them to give people a bit more a bit more leeway, a grace period. You always leave options on the table. You never take those options off the table. But as I said, you know, we, we do keep in regular contact with the banks. And at the moment, whilst it's tough going, people are managing through. Do you know how much food prices have gone up 
by since Labor took office? Um, it depends on what food items you're talking about, and I you know, don't memorize so all CPI, of the. I don't, I don't memorize all of the numbers, but it is it's a significant it's a significant amount. Um, if I think about fruit and vegetables, particularly high increases in the price of fruit and vegetables, and actually very much more so in the last eighteen months or so. Mm. Um, so if I go if I talk about my own supermarket shopping, you know, if you think about the the price of a block of cheese, everybody measures the price of a block of cheese. You could previously get a block of you know a one kg block of cheese for ten to twelve. You're now more looking at $18, $19. Um, and, you know, that's a significant erosion of household purchasing power. Yeah, the food price index has gone up by 30% since mm. Labor took office. So say there was a Auckland Fano, two, um, two parents, one kid spending about $300 on their supermarket shop. They're spending $70 more now than they were when Labor first took office. And you want to give them $70 a week more and you want to give them $4 25 in GST back. Wouldn't tax cuts be better for those plus, families? Plus $25 a week increase in working for families. And I'd also note that you, you don't, you're not including wage inflation in that as well. So wages have gone up more than prices have gone up. That so also yes, done that I, I, with national and government. Not, not necessarily. Also promising so changes what, no, to no, because actually, no, no, let's just, let's just cut to the chase on that. Minimum wage growth, which helps to drive growth right the way through the rest of the economy. Minimum wage has gone up nearly $7 an hour in the six years that we've been in government. It went up by half that amount, uh, less than half that amount, in the nine years that National was in government. We've been actively working to to raise wages. Wage growth in under our government has outstripped wage growth under the national government. I'm very proud of that. And it is a Doesn't head off. Doesn't change the fact is, what people are dealing with at the checkout every um, every week or night. Of course, and particularly so in the last 18 months as we've seen the spike of inflation. The government can't necessarily control that though. Now we can. there are some things we can do that have an impact on inflation. Tax cuts. But actually a lot, well, if you want to make inflation and, work, well, that's it, a good place to start. Well, and indexing, indexing income tax brackets to inflation. Tax cuts will be inflationary. Every economist will tell you that tax cuts will be inflationary. So the inflation will stay higher for longer, interest rates will stay higher for longer because of the economic stimulus caused by tax cuts. Have you changed any of your habits at the supermarket? Do you ever hesitate to buy something now or put something back? Look, I, I would never um, uh, make a claim that someone on my salary is going to be feeling the pinch at the checkout the same as uh, many, many New Zealand families are. And I, yet, I, I still, still do my own supermarket shopping. I've seen families putting items back when they get to the checkout and it's not the luxuries that they're putting back. It's often basic stuff and it's because they're struggling to make ends meet. So I see that regularly and I absolutely expect you know, appreciate the pressure that Kiwi families have been feeling. And yet someone on your salary, about half a million dollars a year, is still getting those GST tax breaks. Why? Well, they would. I would benefit more from National's tax cuts, and I'm not supporting those. I think that tax cuts for people like me are unjustifiable in the current economic climate. What modelling have you got that shows that your dental policy, um, how many low-income New Zealanders are going to benefit versus middle and high-income New Zealanders? Um, I, I, we, we released some of the information when we released the policy. I don't have it sitting in front of me, but we do know that lower income New Zealanders are more likely to not visit the dentist in their 20s um, than middle or higher income New Zealanders. So by making it free, we are likely to see an uptake in that area. We also know that in the age of 
you know the age the 20 to 30 age bracket it's where we start to see the tooth decay that then causes lifelong problems start to emerge so by tackling that age group first we can actually hopefully reduce some of the need for dental work later on in life again universal though right so 380 million for universal dent- dental care for for under 30s basic care i've got some ministry of health costings here for low income parents low income pregnant women and a gold card checkup for over 65s that's just 52 $0.5 million for our most vulnerable versus the $380 million that you're spending on it. Wouldn't that have been more fiscally responsible? No, well, actually, if you look at the people who might not be getting dental care, um, including middle-income New Zealanders who might not be going to the dentist, we pay more for that in the longer term in terms of the health outcomes for those people and in terms of the you know, the, 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 the more serious dental work that they may need later in life. So everyone will benefit from everybody having better dental care. I'd also note that we don't means-test health care. You know, if people are going to say that we're going to start means-testing access to health care, and I believe that dental care is a form of health care, then are they going to say we're going to means-test cancer drugs? We don't do that. Are they going to say we're going to means-test access to other pharmaceuticals funded by Pharmac or means-test access to the emergency department on the basis that someone could afford to pay to go elsewhere. I we don't do you're that being, now. You're being daft now because that's not that's not going to happen. But what you're doing here, what you're talking about is a multi-hundred million dollar policy and one that's set to get vastly more expensive. And we know that lower um, and middle income households uh, need this policy more. It should be targeted. Uh, no, I, I think that healthcare should be universal. I think everybody should have access to healthcare. And I'd also point out that higher income let New me, Zealanders pay more tax. Let me give to you this case study then. A 25-year-old trust fund kid who earns a million dollars a year they're going to get $1,000 back from National over the course of the year. And that same year, that millionaire trust fund kid gets from Labor $400 for a checkup, a clean, uh, a filling in an x-ray, 216 from GST off route and veggies, 20 bucks for their quarterly prescriptions. That's $636 back from Labor. If they had a baby, they'd get the best start payment, also not means tested. That's another 3.5k from, from Labor. If they study, fees free, also not means tested. You've accused National of being the party of millionaires. Isn't Labor the party of millionaires? They pay more tax in the first place. And so um, by allowing universal access to public services, we're not going to discriminate against people um, based on the fact that they earn a lot of money. They pay more tax and therefore they should still be able to access the same amount of public services. You think multi-millionaires should be able to get free dental off the state? Um, as I've indicated, I think that dental care is a form of health care that should be universally available. I, I I'm not going to means test them when they go to A&E either. When you push it out to universal for everybody, would you'd be taking advantage of that free dental as well? Uh, like, as I said, healthcare is free, and I believe that healthcare should be free to everybody. Well, what about Best Start then? So that's... And I'm, I'm quite proud to pay more tax. As a higher income New Zealander, I pay more tax, and that helps to offset the cost of providing public services to other New Zealanders. I'm very happy as a taxpayer then to be giving you free dental, um, potentially. Would you review Best Start then? It's not a not a healthcare policy, as you're saying. It's um, not means tested. You're giving millions and millions and millions of dollars to households which are earning over 200 k we recognise it, it, there is there is a form of stepping down um, based on there's a universal payment in the beginning for children yep, and, then it, and then it and then it steps three. up for lower income New Zealanders. I think it's a good approach. Okay, but you won't look at reviewing it for that that first cohort. No. Okay. Um, last clip from your maiden speech in this episode of Chris Hipkins. This is your life. I'm deeply disappointed. We are one election victory away from achieving a universal living allowance for students. Have you got a universal student allowance coming? 
this election? Look, I'm not announcing our education policy today, but I wouldn't be holding my breath for that one. You wouldn't be holding your breath for that one, okay, because you were talking about how Labor had campaigned in 2008 on universal student allowances and how you were deeply disappointed that you weren't able to see that through. So you deeply disappointing your own self now. 15 years have, have elapsed since that time and obviously the so world, the world has anymore. changed. No, I absolutely still believe in the value of a free education and supporting people through that, but we cannot do that all at the same time and we do have to manage the finances carefully. What is the point of view though? If you fundamentally believe in these things, you personally and also the Labour Party proper, but you're not willing to do them political expediency perhaps? No, probably the one thing that I would say if I reflect on my um, my my life in politics, my journey in politics from my time as a student, student advocate um, through to today is I probably take a slightly broader view around education matters in particular than I did back then in the sense that if, you're, if you were going to ask me to prioritise where extra education funding would go, I'd, there's no doubt I'd like to support tertiary students but I'm also very focused on early childhood education and on the sorts of things that create a, a, a bigger foundation, which it probably wasn't 20 years ago. Because there's a couple of other broken promises there as well. The postgraduate student allowance, you promised that in 2017, extending fees-free. Uh, that was the original plan. That's not going to happen either? Well, we were very clear that fees-free would be a, an election-by-election election commitment. We fulfilled the commitment that we put forward in 2017. We didn't put forward a commitment to expand it in 2020, so I don't believe that's a broken promise. Had in terms of the um, postgrad student allowances and so on, we would have got there had it not been for COVID-19. Um, COVID-19 disrupted a lot of the priorities that we had in that first term because we we literally rewrote the budget in 2020 at the last minute to take stuff out of it in order to fund the COVID response. Have you heard that some of your ministers and senior political staffers are looking at other opportunities outside of politics now? They think the gig is up. Oh, that happens at every election. Whether, whether you think your party's going to lose or not, there are people who come and go from parliament um, in election times. That that happened after the 2020 election where we got the biggest majority um, that any uh, party's had under But you're aware of ministers who are planning their next moves because oh, they think it's over for Labour. I, I certainly haven't asked them that, but everybody um, you know, uh, considers their future around election time. I, I'm certainly yeah. not aware of any ministers. I'm aware of some uh, ex-ministers and MPs because they've already announced that they're retiring. Okay, because I, I have been hearing that ministers and senior political staffers are considering their next options. I'm told from sources within your caucus that your inter internal polling, and um, excuse my French, that your internal polling is quote unquote fucked. No. It's not? No. It, no. Are you polling below 30%? Um, there have been days where we have been below 30, but there have been days when we've been above 30. Well, isn't that possibly an accurate description then if you've been dropping below 30? No. Okay, here's an anonymous the quote from you. The campaign's only just starting. Here's an anonymous quote from you from within the Labour caucus. Everyone is depressed. No, I don't accept that either. They think it's over. No, I don't accept that. The campaign's just getting started. I've we've, we, we have regular caucus meetings. I think the mood is uh, resolved, I think would be the way that I would describe that. People are, are very much looking forward to getting out on the campaign trail. Okay, last question. I know you don't have a plan B, so let's say we're not talking about you, but is it conceivable... Are there any circumstances under which a leader can continue to lead a political party if they're defeated in an election? Like I said, not even thinking about that till after but the is election. But has it ever happened before? Is it even conceivable for not, someone to stay on for another full term? Not even, not even giving it a second thought until after the election. All right. Thank you very much for your time, Chris Hickens. Cheers. Wasn't that interesting? Chippy is gone. Campaign Chris is in the house. Chris Hipkins is increasingly sounding like Jacinda Ardern used to in her longer form interviews, saying a whole lot without saying much at all. 
I've interviewed Hipkins more times than I can count and have listened to almost every other interview he's done since becoming Prime Minister, and he is a changed man. Gone are the days of candid answers, personable musings, a willingness to consider, in the heat of the moment, policies that would make a material difference to Kiwis. There's a very good reason for this, of course, and it's written across his usually comic book cherry face. Hipkins is worried. The stakes are so high. His job is on the line and there is a very real chance his short time as Prime Minister will be over after just 262 days. In fact, a shocking revelation there in our interview, Labour has been dropping below 30% in its own internal polling. And more than once, that is very, very bad news for the red team. It was a sucker punch for the party when Labour tipped into the terrible 20s in the latest One News Varium poll on 29%. The fact it's now coming from Labour's own pollsters will mean they can't bury their heads in the sand. They can't pretend it was just a blip. They're now officially in the kill zone. As you heard me say there, I've been told from within the Labour caucus that senior political staffers, even ministers, are considering their next moves. They think it is over for Labour. When your team starts jumping ship, it's usually a sign the ship is sinking. That said, other members of his caucus told me that despite the fight on their hands, the team is still remarkably united. And Hipkins is right as well, the campaign has only just begun. Where he doesn't help himself, though, is all this compromising on morals and value propositions. We saw it when he ruled out the capital gains tax, and you heard it there again on student allowances. Don't hold your breath, he says in 2023, after being deeply disappointed in 2008 that they didn't get a chance to realise the policy he so keenly believed in. What is the point of entering Parliament full of ideals and commitments and beliefs if when you get there and finally have your chance to make a difference, your career is littered with broken promises and a mind changed by political expediency? And so many broken promises, student allowances, post-grad allowances, fees-free, breast screening, which he said is not even something he has looked at. Bowel screening, though, didn't seem completely off the table, nor changes and more money to Pharmac. He flip-flopped on child abuse reduction target within 10 seconds of saying absolutely he'd consider it. And he's not budging on the prison reduction target, but he is open to working with banks for more support with mortgagee sales. We have got weeks of policy to come from both sides. It'll all be on the table come October 14. The upshot is there's a reason Chris Hipkins isn't dancing with robots, eating hot dogs or playing with bubbles as journalists have been imploring him to do on the campaign, myself included. And fair cop, it's business time, game on. But right now, Hipkins' campaign game is also getting trounced by a gelato-scooping, ice-cream-eating, cricket-playing, hair-net-wearing Christopher Luxon. And that personable playing field used to be the domain of the artist formerly known as Chippy. That's my take. I'm interested to hear your thoughts too. Email me tova at stuff.co.nz and we'll get to some of your feedback a little later in the pod. It's time now for Snakes and Leaders with our incredible national affairs editor for The Post and Sunday Star Times, Andrea Vance, who is currently travelling as part of the press pack with Christopher Luxon in Queenstown. Welcome to the pod, Andrea. Hello, how are you doing? 
It's a beautiful day in Queenstown. I know. Absolutely I'm stunning. Utterly jealous of you. And it's been great to see you this weekend as well. This week at the major party campaign launches, everyone was having such a good time. And then it quickly descended into these allegations of nastiness and, and name calling. Who this week emerged victorious for you? Who's your winner? Well, I think it's just it's a really difficult one. I, I went through all the options this week, but I think I'm going to give it to Chris Hipkins because. He won the battle of the launches, right? Mm. I think the atmosphere was better at the Labour Party one. And he had a killer policy, dental care. I mean, there are a whole lot of caveats to that. And he's going to have to convince the electorate that he can actually, and Labour can actually deliver that, expanding that free dental care to all under 30s. And then, you know, the eventual goal of universal health care. I think he's got a, a really hard road to climb there. But, you know, Christopher Luxon's launch was a little lacking in atmosphere, shall we say. And a pledge card, frankly, is a pretty lame announcement for your big, splashy campaign day. It really did feel like, drum roll, please. Wow, wow. I feel like um, maybe it's because he's been out of the country for such a long time, but d- didn't he know the connotations of a pledge card? I mean, they've been pretty controversial in the past, apart from the fact that, you know, we're in an environmental, twin environmental crisis, printing off thousands, tens of thousands of flyers and postcards really didn't feel like a good move to me. Such a good point. So other than the the pledge card being a bit of a loser this week, who, who was your who was your loser? <laughs> well, I'm going to cheat this week because I'm going to say Chris Hipkins is also my loser <laughs> <laughs> because you will have seen the new um, post-freshwater strategy poll. They were plunging to a new six-year loop seen since Andrew Little days of 26%. Look, it's not all is not lost in those numbers. There's still hope among soft voters that he can convince to come over to the red side. But yeah, 26% is, I mean, these are David Cunliffe days, right? The numbers as low as that. It's looking pretty bleak for him after a good start to the week. It's bad news. And in our interview with Chris Hipkins as well, conceding that Labour has even dipped below 30 in its own internal polling. So it's just shaping up to be a, you know, the rot is starting to to set in. Are there any honourable or, or even dishonourable mentions for you this week? Well, I did. I was tossing up with my with my loser this week, and I was thinking, is it Brian Tamaki? Because he keeps popping up at events, and frankly, it's going to get really boring after a while if he keeps disrupting all the events. But ultimately, I I discarded that. But I do want to give an honourable mention to public servants because I have been thinking that they have become a little bit of a political football in this campaign, rightly or wrongly. You know, they don't do themselves any favours with, um, you know, seventy thousand dollar parties and mm. pofferies, but um. They are contingent of workers who who cannot push back. And it does feel like some of the political parties are punching down on public servants. Yeah, here, yeah, here. Yeah. And also, um, they are the, the engine room of the country. They keep things keep things rolling. Andrea, thank you so much. We'll let you run off and, and jump on the gondola now. But lovely to speak to you. We'll talk to you again next week. Thanks, Tova. Talk soon. Now it is time for the Beehive Buzz. Let's bring in Stuff's magnificent political editor, Luke Malpass, with what we should be looking out for this week. Welcome, Luke, to podcast number one. It is a great pleasure to be here, Tova. And it's shaping up to be a big, it's the economy, stupid, 
week. What is that going to mean for the major parties? Okay, so everything this week and then into next week is going to be framed by what's called the um, pre-election economic and fiscal update, which is basically the Treasury um, opening up the books and showing the nation what the fiscal situation is. Uh, So for both parties, this week are about kind of positioning themselves um, where they sit on the economic spectrum. And both of them, uh, both of the majors actually, it's really more about painting the other party as not very good on the economy. So that's what they're both trying to do. Because <laughs> it's, not, it's not necessarily going to be good news for, for Labour, but also could it throw up some fish hooks for National as well in terms of this criticism about the fiscal holes and its tax plan? Yes, it could. I mean, the, the issue for the tax plan and potentially National's overall fiscal plan is that they might just have a lot less money to play with. And for Labour, who's trying to frame everything in terms of Labour investment versus National cuts, this plays to their strength. However... Overall, actually, I think probably for most people, if it shows that there is significantly uh, less money in the coffers than was expected in the May budget, and there is going to be even less coming in, and the economic outlook is uh, grim, that is overall just bad for the government. And I think that's probably what most people uh, would take out of it, because that means basically, you know, the amount of revenue the government's getting to pay off debt, to pay for government services is less, and so whoever ends up in government's going to actually have to make some tough decisions even although pretty much everyone more or less pretending at the moment that, that they're not going to have to. And um, and this election, on, on the current polling, this election really does feel like it belongs to the minor parties. Is is there anything in particular that we should be keeping an eye out for with any of them this week? Oh, I think the Greens will basically be continuing to kind of prod sort of left of Labour voters saying, hey, we've actually got some really good kind of tax ideas to bring in some to bring in some more money and to make the tax system fairer, you know, tax switch, CGT. So I think they'll be pushing a fair bit of a fair bit of that stuff because they're trying to wick off those voters to the left. For the ACT Party, um, I think probably it'll be more what's appeared in the last few days, a bit more doubling down on basically calling the National Party useless. They're not sort of fronting up to problems. So um, from their from their perspective, then you've got sort of Winston lurking around in the regions. <laughs> Look, you sleep with one eye open um, just in case Winston Peters does loom and certainly on the current polling it's looking like he could be back. Well, I, I'd honestly I would now probably put it at a better than odds even chance. I saw him at a Business NZ um, conference early in the week, their election conference where they get through all the leaders and they all give speeches. Winston showed up. He's like a he's like an aged comedian. You know, <laughs> he's sort of giving out the greatest hits. He knows the routine. Most of it's not really relevant to uh, the 2020s at all, but uh, that's his thing. And it's interesting going around talking to people in the room. There's a mixture of um, some people sort of horrified, but, but quite a lot of people are like, oh, look, doesn't really matter what he says. He's a pretty good minister when he gets in. You can you can talk to him, and that's and that's really all we want. So you know the the two sides of Winston Peters. All right, New Zealand. No matter how, which way you cut it, brace, brace, brace. Luke Malpass, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks so much, Tova. I'm always interested to hear from you too. Email Tova at stuff.co.nz. Producer Chris, what have you pulled from the the mailbag for us this week? We've had some really interesting emails. Thanks, Tova. Uh, The first one that I've chosen is from Adrian, and he says, Hi, Tova. When you get the opportunity, can you please ask National if I, who's age 73, will continue to receive the winter warmth payment as introduced by Labour if they, National, are elected government? And can you confirm that the Auckland fuel tax surcharge will be removed? And if yes, how will Auckland ratepayers cover this loss of revenue? Many thanks. I know you're busy, so only... 
if you have an opportunity to ask the above questions. Very polite. Thank you, Adrian. Thank you very much, Adrian. Um, yes, to keeping the winter energy payment, the National Party would do that and correct the regional fuel tax will be gone. And a very good question about how the lost revenue will be made up. The Auckland mayor is actually saying it could leave the city with a $2 billion shortfall. National release figures are back in May showing that half the $700 million collected from the tax hadn't actually been spent. It was just sitting in a bank account. So the Nats are kind of pointing to the fact that it's not being used. They also seem more keen on the idea of a congestion charge or, or tolls to pay for the, the transport shortfall. Uh, I hope that answers your question. Thanks, Adrian. Yeah, and Tauranga is eyeing a congestion charge at the moment, right? So that could be the kind of the pilot project. It's not daft, is it? Living in London, it worked. It meant that most of the, the transport in the inner city were buses or ride shares, taxis, and you didn't have a lot of private cars. It makes sense to me. I'm from up north. I don't know about that fancy Your capital fancy stuff. Ways. <laughs> fancy ways. down <laughs> south. Um, another message. This is from Donald. In 2022, I retired after five terms in local government. The last three terms as deputy mayor of Rotorua. I leave with a degree of frustration that as the general election fast approaches, a change that is long overdue, seemed to have strong cross-party support and would save the country millions, is not being spoken about by any party. And that is changing to a four-year election cycle. That's a point that Glenn also wrote about. He said, three-year terms are too short. I want four-year terms. A great point. And it is actually being talked about, Donald. Um, it's been talked about on the campaign trial this week. In fact, Top and New Zealand First, they've been calling for a referendum on a four-year parliamentary term. ACT has a bill supporting a four-year term and Labour is open to it. Chris Hipkins reiterated that this week. National is too. And yet, New Zealand has one of the shortest parliamentary terms in the world. There was an independent panel of experts that poured over our electoral laws recently and released their review earlier this year. It said, among other things, lower the voting age to 16, lower the 5% threshold to enter parliament to 3.5% and a four-year term. So the pollies are into it, the independent experts are into it, but voters not so much, because this concept has actually been put to the public twice before. In 1990 and in 1967, it was heavily voted down both times. And i got to say, as a political reporter, a political journalist, I don't want a four-year term because I live for election campaigns. I would, I would have two-year terms if I could. Bad for democracy, great fun for political reporters. <laughs> um, now, final one from me. There's a lot of people who are delighted to have you back behind the microphone. Very happy to be back behind one myself, got to say. Uh, I presume this is from a long-time listener. Jan says, Hi Tova, I just wanted to know what happened to Polly, the Polly. cat you took in, then had to give back to the owners. Also, I love the interview you have with the amazing Gloria Allred during your Today Time. Oh, thank you, Jan. I love that interview too. That was one of my all-time favourites. You got a standing ovation from the crew, did um, Gloria Allred. And thank you so much for asking about Polly. There has been a very... Very happy twist in the tale of Polly the cat. By way of background, for those who don't know the story, Polly is the cat who made herself at home in the pink bats under my house. She was starving when I first met her. I took her to the vet. I started feeding her, caring for her, and then she moved uh, gradually from below the house into my flat, to the chagrin of my landlords. But then one fateful day after Cyclone Gabrielle a missing cat flyer landed in my letterbox and her old owners took her back. They kept her indoors for a few weeks. 
As soon as she was allowed out again, though, she came straight back to me. Turns out the neighbours had a dog, which I think was the reason she left in the first place. And where the happy twist comes in, over time, her owners and I, we broke a truce and a kind of co parenting arrangement where they fed her at the fence line between our houses and I cared for her and she slept in my bed and things. The happy twist is that just a couple of weeks ago, we all met in person for the first time on my birthday actually, and they agreed to let me adopt Polly officially. Now we are living in relative harmony, and I say relative because Polly is a very, very chatty cat, but um, Polly and I are living happily ever after as we very speak. You've got that loving feline. I do, I do, polyamorous. <laughs> That's the feedback for this week. And remember, you can get in touch. Uh, just email tova at stuff.co.nz. You've been listening to Tova, hosted and produced by me, Tova O'Brien. There is a new episode every Thursday. You can listen to them all at stuff.co.nz slash Tova or wherever you get your podcasts. If you follow us on your favourite podcast app, you'll get the latest episode automatically and keep an eye on the feed for bonus shortcasts. Thanks to our audio editor wizard, Connor Scott, and executive producer, Chris Reed. Most of all, thanks to you for listening. You know the cliche, a week is a long time in politics. Anything could happen. We got you. Kakite.